Hello, listeners. Welcome to Misfit Apparitions, the podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm Don, and in this episode, we'll conclude our series on the Velisca Axe Murder House with the final part of our three-part phone interview with the person most knowledgeable about the Velisca Axe murder case, Dr. Edgar Epperly, author of the book Fiend Incarnate, Velisca Axe Murders of 1912. Please be warned, this episode contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. I'm fascinated in your book. There's like one known crime scene photo. And when I saw it, I was surprised there were uh-huh. any. But there was a gentleman named Bruce Stillian Sr. whose camera was destroyed. But who actually shot right. that crime scene photo? And are there any others? Yeah, that's right. Bruce was a 21-year-old. His dad was a pharmacist, drugstore owner. They were kind of pillars in the community, and they were good friends to Joneses. And Bruce was, uh, he was a stringer for the uh, Omaha World Herald newspaper, meaning that whenever there was something of newsworthy nature happened in Villisca or around Villisca, he would send in a, a story or a description of it, and probably that's what he sent in, and they would write a story. Or they would ignore it. It depends on whether they thought it was as interesting as he did. But uh, the Omaha World Herald reporter came, and of course, by train, it's it's an hour or maybe a little longer. But he was there that morning while people were still going into the house, so he got there very early. And he had a, a small camera, probably a brownie box camera, I don't know, and he gave that to Bruce to go in and take photos of the victims in the beds and, and things like that. And Bruce did. Uh, he, he took the shots. And as he was coming out, came off the front porch, Rossmore, brother of the murdered man, was there and saw him and saw he had the camera and realized that he had taken pictures. And it was, Ross was greatly offended. I mean, he, he you know, he thought the family had had a, a horrible uh, event uh, today, and now here's someone trying to exploit it more. And so he he came up, and they got into a, quote, fight. I think it was more of a kind of a rooster fight where they were bumping up against each other, and finally Ross got a hold of the camera and wrenched it away, and then he... Uh, broke it open and stomped on it and the light exposed it. None of those pictures came out. The picture that's in the thing, I think it's on page five, maybe, I can't remember. It's page quite 13. early in the book. Thirteen. Thirteen, okay. Uh, uh, this is the, the picture of the uh, covered mirror. Yeah, that's correct. Is that correct. the one we're talking about? That's, that's correct. Yeah. Um, that picture, I got that picture from the morgue 
in uh, the uh, Des Moines Register, uh, the newspaper in Des Moines, Iowa. And I got that in probably the 60s, somewhere along in there when I was doing research. Uh, Don Brown, the guy that worked with me, I had asked the register, and they basically said, yeah, we got a picture too, but you can't have them. <laughs> Don got a job with the register. Uh, he was managing some of their uh, delivery programs in Des Moines. He had an office in in the register building downtown, and I said, Don, they say they got pictures in their mortgage. And he said, I'll see what I can do. And he, he was able to get, I don't know if he, he made uh, friends with the person who ran it or if he just went in and got it and made copy of it and sent it. That, that's where that picture came from. Okay. came from Des Moines Register. There may be well, more I, pictures, but that's the only one. That's, well, it's uh, possible. Uh, it almost certainly was taken by a man named Edgar Markham. Markham. Markham was a young reporter for the Register when the murder happened, and he got sent there. Uh, there is also a picture of the some of the reporters that were there at the first time, right. and he's in that group, and they're identified. You can get a it's small, obviously, but you can get a look at him. Uh, he became quite a famous reporter for the Register, but at this time he was uh, uh, pretty young, pretty young. But I would suspect that he brought a camera with him and he took that picture. And that probably was not taken on the day of the murder. It was probably taken uh, Tuesday, I bet. Now, this is all speculation. I can't prove mm -hmm. it one way or another. But I'm pretty sure that uh, they were careful that they took no, they didn't allow any pictures until the bodies were removed. I mean, they were sensitive about it, at least. Right. So I bet he took it on Tuesday, but uh, that's just my speculation. There are some the, there are some possibilities of pictures in the in the Villisca Review. They print the actions of the County Board of Supervisors. That's a political group in Iowa that kind of um, run operate a lot of the programs on the county level. And there is they their bills are always listed. What did, what did they pay? How much money did they pay for rock gravel for the road such and such and uh, labor and things like that? And during the summer, I don't remember. I've got it down. I don't remember the exact date, but it's probably uh, June or July. There's just a one line squib that says photo Velisca murder photos. Six dollars. So they authorized a bill to pay a photographer six dollars to take Felisca murder photos. Doesn't say what they are. Uh, I've never uh, seen any, but they apparently existed at one time. Then there's another set that uh, a month or so after the murder, a photographer in Creston, Iowa, which is 50 or 60 miles east of Villisca, bigger town, little bigger town. Villisca's 2,000. Cresco was probably 6,000 then. This photographer uh, came to Villisca the week of the murder, and he made a set of lantern slides. 
Uh, I think he made, uh, I think he had 17 slides. And it's not clear what those were, uh, but uh, they were not very, um, uh, you know, wasn't the bodies lying in, in situ. Uh, it was more the, the outside of the house, the uh, maybe he took pictures of the bedrooms. I have no idea. And he put that together into a, a lantern slide show that he showed in Crusco, Creston, and then he showed it in Corning, which is the town just east of Villisca, about 20 miles east of Villisca, about the same size as Villisca. Um, that showing, uh, those two showings, caused just a firestorm of excitement, uh, pressure, uh, the, uh, was considered exploitive and uh, in poor taste. Uh, was it illegal? They they tried to get the state attorney general to close the theater and stuff like that. And um, the attorney general said, you know, the Constitution does not oppose that. And he didn't have any basis for doing it and so on. But the complaints were so vociferous that they stopped showing it. I, I did not know anything about what happened to those until not too many years ago, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, a guy who's a junior high history teacher, he's an exceptional teacher. He he was, uh, I think he was teaching in Washington, Iowa, which is just south of Iowa City, somewhere in that southwest, southeastern part of the state. He had He had gotten his hands on those photographs. He had those lantern slides, and he showed them in his class. And then they disappeared. And so the police were brought in, and they did some looking, and they finally, they identified pretty quickly that it was one of the students, and they thought they knew who it was, and under a little bit of pressure, he confessed and gave them back to the police. Well, after that had all been settled, I'm sure he was, uh, there was no imprisonment or Fine, I, I, I'm sure he got a stiff talking to and sent home. But uh, anyway, the guy went went to get his photographs, and now the police weren't able to produce them. They they had mislaid them, or they had lost them. Well, they somebody thought, boy, these are interesting, or these are might be valuable, and they filched them themselves. Is what happened. Sounds but like those. It photographs probably exist somewhere wow. i don't think they're very enlightening they're not going to give you any any shots of the scene that will help you much but they um, they exist I'm, wow. I, I assume they exist unless whoever took them got a little nervous and decided he better destroy them so he wouldn't be caught with them true so during your decades-long research and you interviewed many people tied to the case, but did you ever interview anyone who was directly or indirectly related to the victims, like Donna Jones, the Stillinger siblings? Yeah, I uh, I did interview some people, but uh, some of it was, was kind of a misfire on my part. Uh, we, on our first trip there, when the three of us went down and got all this started, uh, there were quite a few people who were adult and alive at the time of the murder. It was 12, and we were there in uh, 56. 
Uh, and, you know, people who were 20 and 30 years old at the time of the murder were now 70 and so on. The the best interview we got was from uh, Dr. Uh, Cooper, who was the first doctor on the scene. What we did was we went to the local newspaper and talked to the editor, and uh, he gave us uh, a list, suggestions of people that were old enough to have memories of it. And then we divided those up so that each of us went to different people. And uh, then we we would meet, <laughs> have, have an interview, uh, figure an hour, and then we would meet and we would uh, talk about our interview. We would try to recreate it as best we could, and the other two would ask questions to sharpen the, the thing. Uh, Leo Mundy, he, uh, he interviewed Dr. Cooper. Dr. Cooper had an office on uh, downtown, up, up second floor. You know, you go up a long flight of stairs. I think it's kind of a cardiac test. Uh, and he said, I, I went, Leo said, I went in there and it's a darkened room. And way in the back was a roll top desk with a light on it. That's the only light in the room. And uh, this old guy was at the at that desk. And he looked up and said, well, what do you want, young man? And Leo went back and said, well, I'd like to talk with you about the Villisca murder. And he said, I won't talk about it. That ruined this town, divided this town for 40 years. It's, it, it's just let it lie. Just let it lie. I'm not going to talk about it. And Leo was crestfallen, of course, because, and he said that, well, we that, we understood that you were one of the first doctors on the scene. And he said, I was the first. And he launched into a hour-long soliloquy. He couldn't contain himself once he got started. <laughs> the biggest problem we had was we didn't know enough about the, the case to ask intelligent questions. I interviewed Edith Stillinger, who was a sister an older sister of the murdered girls. And she was uh, not interested, really. I mean, we stood out on her porch for maybe 10 minutes. And I um, I said, well, you know, I understood that, you know, you're, you're an older sister. Yes, yes, that's right. Well, then she said, when, what year was that? I said, it was 1912. She said, oh, 1912. That's the year I graduated from high school. <laughs> and, you know, she, I don't, I don't think she had thought about that murder for years. So I didn't really get very much out of that. We interviewed um, Oscar Winston, who was a, a county attorney in the Kelly trial. And I interviewed him three or four times over the years. And he was, uh, he was cooperative. In fact, I've got a, a couple of documents, uh, a multi-page, like 200 pages of testimony that was taken at one of the trials, and uh, he uh, had it produced for himself. So he would have a feeling for what was going on. And he, he gave that to me. He was no longer, you know, he was now a man approaching 80 and ill, and he, you know, so I, I have some things like that. He had a lot of inside information and uh, uh, little tidbit stories. Um, he said, I was down in, uh, in the 1920s after all of this happened. He said, I was in Kansas City walking down the street and 
all of a sudden I heard somebody yell, hey, Oscar. And I stopped, and here was Wilkerson, the detective. And he said that we ch we chatted out there in the street a minute, and he, he said, well, why don't you, my apartment's just down the street. Uh, why don't you come up, and I'll, we'll have a drink. And so we did, and it was a nice apartment. And I I said to him, well, Jim, you, you, you know, you got a nice apartment here. And he said, well, you can thank the citizens of Montgomery County for $60,000 of it. So he might have been a little braggadocio, but uh, he apparently got quite a bit of money out of his uh, three, four years in Montgomery County working on the case. So you got, uh, you know, you get some tidbit things like that that you, you can't find any other way, probably. Uh, one of the best interviews I got was from Bob Moore, Sr. Robert Moore was a nephew of uh, the murdered man, and his father, Ross, led the fight to convict Jones and uh, to uh, solve the murder. And Bob Moore was a bona fide hero in World War II. He, he was, they've always... Villisca has always it's a garrison town. They've they've always had a militia unit there, mm -hmm. and they get called out first. And so they ended up in North Africa. Some of the first troops that we got together, they were they were from Montgomery County, Red Oak and Villisca, and all of the little towns around. And uh, Bob Moore was, uh, I don't know what it's he was an officer. Led he had a, he had about uh, fifteen hundred men under his control brigade I think, and when Rommel hit the uh, Allies at Kasserine Pass, they overran the American troops, and his unit was trapped behind the lines. Uh, they were they retreated up into the hills, and uh, then he got them organized and led them all, I don't know, took several days to lead them back around dodging the German patrols. And um, he got about a thousand of them out, about 500 of them were either killed or captured, but he, he held them together as a unit. And then um, there's a, a Pulitzer Prize photo of him. Uh, he, in 1943, he was... Uh, sent back to organize the infantry training school at Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, they took people who had actually been, you know, leading infantry to run that school. And in the process, he came by, uh, he came back to Villisca. And he, the Omaha World Herald had a photographer there. And when he got off the train, his wife and two kids came running up and it's he shot from the back and he's holding his wife and the little kids are kind of holding on to his co coattails and uh, that picture got the Pulitzer Prize for that year and um, so he his interview he was now retired uh, his wife was still alive and uh, he was a hundred percent convinced that F.F. F. Jones was behind it he believed that that was the case. I, uh, I have found you catch more flies with honey than you do vinegar. And so I didn't raise any objection to his position, mm -hmm. but he, he talked 
long time and it just lots of, of detail about what it was like and things like that. Wow, what an amazing case. I have one more question to ask you. What fascinates you the most about this case? Oh, <laughs> that's a difficult question to answer. Uh, I um, I see it as what I call an iconic murder. I mean by that, I, I've already said that most murders are not all that interesting. It, they're just examples of... Uh, kind of extreme behavior that humans can do and most of us are have it under control and don't but occasionally we do you know we lose control road rage is a good example uh but also like in the godfather you know it's it's not personal it's just a business and you know you're in the way so i've got to kill you uh i'm sorry about that but we're going to do it those kind of murders are of minimal interest to me frankly uh, but this case, uh, certainly it's the most spectacular, the most uh, uh, bizarre case in Iowa history. And it vies to be, well, you take even Lizzie Borden. Uh, Lizzie Borden would not be uh, all that significant if it weren't uh, patricide and matricide elements of it. And whether or not Lizzie killed her own parents and why would she do it and that kind of stuff. Uh, so one of the reasons is that this this murder carries a lot of uh, very deep questions about how you're not in extreme human behavior. You're in <laughs> exaggerated human behavior. I mean, it's, it's out uh, so far out on the tail of the distribution that uh, you wonder how could people, how could a person do this kind of thing? So that that's one thing. It it, it uh, lends itself to that. Secondly, uh, I as I gradually got interested in it, uh, I've, like everyone else, my first idea was to solve it, and then I've lost some interest in that and uh, became more interested in. I I just kind of wanted to know everything about it. I, I kind of wanted, uh, I must, uh, <laughs> I shouldn't admit this, uh, but there's an element of vanity involved. Uh, I, uh, I try to keep that concealed, but uh, uh, I don't think there's anybody in the world that knows as much about this case as I do. And I kind of glory in that in a way. You know, I I catch myself walking down the street and seeing a perfect stranger and thinking, they don't know anything about Melissa at all. <laughs> and I know all of this. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's a, a pretty petty thing. But I, uh, I've i always been interested in history, and I would, you know, I, I would uh, write history uh, professionally if I could. I'm not that uh, serious about it. I had other things to do. I'm not that good a writer. And uh, uh, this case uh, became the only vehicle I would ever have to uh, really expound on a historical topic. And that, that became a, an end in itself. Uh, I, can, I did a lot of my writing out in a park we have in this little town. And 
Oh, it's a beautiful little area. It's quiet and very few people come by. And I would sit in the car and spend a couple hours writing. And, and when I would get something like I liked it, and I, I really got a sense of satisfaction that the people who, who read it, you know, it's not a popular book. It's a specialized book, but there we've sold a few. And uh, those people are going to uh, hear uh, what really happened. One of the, the uh, you ask a question uh, about the um, paranormal investigations and what did I think of that and so on. Uh, I don't much, I don't, that's not my field. I don't know very much about that. And I don't have a lot of opinion. The one thing that I, <clears throat> bridal ad if they claim to perceive in their studies things that happen that I know full well did not happen that that I, I don't there's been a lot of distortion not just the paranormal group but the memories in Villisca have been badly distorted and I, uh, <clears throat> I, I that bothers me I'd like to see uh, people go to the records where they can see people talking under oath, saying, I did this, I did that, uh, he did this. And to save the story has become a, a, a real purpose of what I'm doing. Let's get, let me give you quickly, and we've got to stop this. I'm sure you, you've got something else to do, with, no, I no, hope, no, in your don't. life. <laughs> <laughs> For example, there is so much interest in the closets that uh, the killer hid in the closet. Uh, but if you look at the people who actually went through the house before anybody else did, you've got four doctors and the county coroner and the um, policeman, Hank Horton. You got six people who were in the house uh, a couple of the doctors might have not gotten there until there were people in the house, but everyone else had uh, had been there. And none of them mentioned one of them, the, the uh, uh, county, uh, an undertaker, came in specifically to look for the evidence that they claimed was in the closet in terms of smoking material. And he, he dismissed it. He said there was nothing in there. I, I went in that closet and I looked carefully for it, and there wasn't anything in there. And that, I think, reflected more the fact that people found it hard to understand how could the killer move from room to room without awakening anybody, and the fact that we have a long tradition of having this uh, horrible feeling that, you know, I, I quickly locked the door, and then I realized, what if I've locked myself in with the killer, you know, uh, the dark at the top of the stairs, that kind of idea. So that um, that started the second day of the murder, and uh, a guy named Hoban, who represented the Kansas City Post, who came a uh, reporter, and he uh, he's the one that wrote the article that claimed that there was evidence that someone had hidden in the closet. But I think Hoban was trying to get a story time. He had a deadline to meet, 
and he created uh, that evidence. Another example of that, everyone talks about the half-eaten meal, that there was a half-eaten meal in the kitchen. None of these people who actually went through mentioned that. That all developed later. I think what it came from was the fact that there were there was evidence that there was they had had milk and cookies when they got home after the church service that night. I suppose they had left dirty dishes in the sink and things like that. And I think that got translated into a a meal that somebody was eating. Some people have speculated that the killer ate the meal. Some people speculated that somebody was eating the meal and fled when the killer came in and things like that, all kinds of outlandish stories. And um, I don't believe those in them for a minute. But uh, that bothers me when people uh, insist that this happened, and I know quite well that it didn't happen. Something else happened, and they don't know that. But those are some of the reasons I've stayed with it. I uh, well, those are Perhaps our great a bit reasons. too much. <laughs> <laughs> we have been joined by Dr. Edgar Epperly. His book entitled Fiend Incarnate, Velisca Axe Murders of 1912, is available at all major booksellers. It is highly recommended, captivating read. Dr. Epperly, it's been a privilege. Thank you for educating us and taking us on a fascinating journey of this unforgettable case. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I, I always enjoy talking about the murder. And... Um, Certainly, it's nice to have a, a vehicle where I can talk about the murder. So thank you very much. It's our pleasure.